Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Roadie on the Horn podcast. My name, as always, is Donovan. I'm here with my great co-host, awesome friend, Ryan RK. How's your day going? What's going on? Happy Wednesday. Yes. Thank you, Donnie. Happy Wednesday, indeed. You know, I'm doing really well. It's uh, it's a nice time, Christmas time. There's snow on the ground right now for me in New York at Colgate. But, you know, it's all good. We had Uno, the resurrection of Uno, come back for us on Xbox this week. Big highlight, big news of the week. You know, it was not necessarily the most sports-related thing that happened, but without a doubt the most significant, the return of Uno after literally like a two-year hiatus of it just not working on Xbox. But it's back, and we're fired up. And uh, we're passing cards around and having a good time again. Yeah, you know, obviously, uh, Uno coming back, the, the most momentous occasion of pretty much anything that's happening this week, obviously, should be plastered over the news. Uh, CNN, ESPN should be talking about Uno being back rather than than football and, and all that good stuff. But um, this is, uh, unfortunately, for the Uno listeners out there, because I know there's definitely people out there that tune in for our Uno opinions that finally get uh, get something across. This is actually a sports podcast. Uh, so we will be discussing sports this week and how else can we start it off with talking about the NFL. Uh, now, I just wanted to say before we get into actual NFL on the field action, well, I guess we're going to talk about on the field action, but uh, there is some action taking players off the field. We saw once again, Arkin, I think it's been like kind of the theme of this season, but the injuries are a little bit more serious this year. It feels like um, more uh, relevant players getting hurt more important players getting hurt. I think uh, I'm sure you saw four of the seven current AFC playoff teams are without their quarterback. It could be without their quarterback either long-term or for the rest of the season, depending on how that works. Um, and we saw this week, obviously, Trevor Lawrence got hurt on Monday Night Football. Uh, he's not practicing right now. We're not sure how long he's going to be out. Uh, the Steelers lost both Kenny Pickett and TJ Watt, which seems like a really, really bad uh, combo there. Obviously, nobody wants to see Mitch Trubisky play football in 2023. Uh, Tank Dell out for the year, fractured his fibula blocking on a run play from the one-yard line. RK, I'm sure you have great opinions on that that decision, throwing your scrawny little little fella out there to block on a, on a first down or a, a first and goal from the one uh, running play, never ideal. Now, also saw Derek Carr is concussed. Who knows what's going to happen there? Obviously, the Saints are still grinding for a playoff spot. Um, only one game out of the lead in the South. And Puka Nakua, after coming back from cramps, ended up leaving with a rib injury. So a lot, a lot, a lot of injury action from this week. Before we get into actually breaking down games, RK, are you on the same sentiment as me here that injuries have been like a little bit more severe, a little bit more significant, especially from like what seems to be top end players this year? Yeah, I uh, I think so. I mean, it seems like, you know, every year we have similar conversations of like top guys getting hurt, but it feels like the top quarterbacks, um, you know, with Lawrence going down here, um, that was obviously tough, especially when these games are on national TV, you know, everybody's seeing it and putting out their tweets right after of uh, Trevor Lawrence hobbling into the uh, locker room. I can't imagine they didn't have a cart. Get him a him, cart. Get him a cart, dude. Like, this is the guy, if there's any guy in your entire organization that deserves a cart for an injured ankle, it's Trevor Lawrence, and you didn't get him a cart. So, I don't know, maybe they left it in London because they're over there for like a month every year because uh, that's like basically their home uh, before it's officially their home in like maybe 10 years or something like that. But that was bad. We even saw like a sideline guy in the uh, New Orleans Saints game, like a chain guy, oh, Brett, bad, tough leg injury there. Like, it, it, everybody's going down. I mean, nobody's safe out there this year uh, in the NFL. Yeah, definitely did not. I didn't want to add that because it was a very severe, gruesome injury on the sideline. You never yeah. want to see the you never want to see the sideline guy holding his leg. Obviously, is separated from where it should be. Uh, not ideal. But we did actually have football played on the field outside of injuries this week. 
Uh, starting off on Thursday night, I would say this is probably the best Thursday night game you're going to see maybe ever, RK. This this may be the most um, just, just fun to watch, interesting, uh, intriguing matchup first off. Obviously, we saw the Cowboys defeat the Seahawks 41-35. Uh, Dak had a really nice game once again. Dak has made a career out of beating up on the non-high-end teams. Uh, Seattle has found themselves as a non-high-end team this year. I think you can say the Seattle Seahawks are in a position to where missing the playoffs is a definite reality for them. Uh, tied at 6-6 six and six with a bunch of other teams in the NFC wildcard, but the Cowboys, once again, they've won another game since losing to Philly in Philly in November. They've won four straight. Obviously, they play the Giants, Panthers, Commanders, and Seahawks. So, I mean, we're not talking about the, the world burners here or anything, RK. But um, as an Eagles fan with a huge matchup coming up on Sunday night against the Cowboys, uh, what are your thoughts on the Cowboys four-game win streak? Are you seeing anything out of this Cowboys, especially the offense, I would say, because they have been really lights out uh the Cowboys are they legit are we thinking this might be a year where they can contend yeah it's it's tough because you always have the back of your mind of like it's the Cowboys when they play in the playoffs and meaningful games you know they're gonna choke you, you look back earlier this season uh the Niners on the or when they played at San Francisco against the Niners you know bad game for Dak Prescott one touchdown three interceptions um but really over you know the last kind of six games for them five of the last six games for Dak Prescott he's had at least three touchdowns uh in those games is really kind of throwing the ball around and yeah most of it you can say is probably CD Lamb and his impact but you've seen Brandon Cooks uh make some impact plays uh, as well for Dallas at times had a touchdown uh, in this game you know maybe not as much Michael Gallup as you thought only one target you know I think he's you know still a solid receiver but been kind of a quieter year for him it, it really has been a lot of CD Lamb and uh, even you know some of their tight ends with this game Jake Ferguson we saw him get involved we've seen Luke Schoonmaker their second round pick get involved at times for the Dallas offense it seems like Prescott likes to work middle of the field and weren't sure how they would have the uh, you know respond without Dalton Schultz in that offense going over to Houston but um, they've still been been able to you know put up a good amount of points here recently and uh you know Seattle they always kind of give you a game and, and this one was definitely really fun to watch Dino Smith was throwing the ball around a lot three touchdowns for DK Metcalf um which is pretty wild and uh they were really heavily targeting Deron Bland in this game I think that's what really stood out and yeah Deron Bland he's broken the NFL record for most pick sixes in a season already and uh you know that's kind of funny considering he's basically uh you know filling in for Trevon Diggs who also kind of has that MO of you know big play or uh for or against you but uh it seemed like just about every play whoever Deron Bland was on the Seahawks were targeting him and, and going for him so maybe that could be something uh, other teams kind of look at and say hey we want to get this ball out quick we want to avoid situations where Micah Parsons and Demarcus Lawrence are coming at us you know we're looking for Deron Bland and even dropped a pick uh, towards the end of this game too. So, um, you know, it kind of has, um, you know, fun for and against the sides of it when when you look at the Dallas secondary right now. But uh, their offense is putting up a lot of points. And even though they're giving up a lot, um, you know, Prescott is, uh, has played well, you know, like I said, um, these last few weeks. But, um, you know, he's going to need to prove it against these good teams. Did have a good game in Philly, and, and that's who they'll take on at home this week. And um, But, uh, you know, once the, uh, once the lights are brightest, that's where we're really kind of keying in on Prescott because we still haven't necessarily seen seen it where he's coming through in these big time moments um you know in uh you know tough matchup games when they need to win in the postseason so it's been good for him as of late but it's a lot easier to do that against teams like Carolina Washington and in this case Seattle than it is uh in the playoffs so still to be seen on that yeah I definitely agree and it is also interesting just to look at their schedule obviously you were mentioning teams like Carolina and Seattle but uh the next four weeks they play Philly uh, at Buffalo in middle of December. So you really never know what you're getting out of that. Could be a freezing cold, um, totally opposite of what normal Cowboys weather is looking like in their games. 
and then they go to Miami, and then they play a game against Detroit. So we're really looking at like the next four weeks as uh, the biggest litmus test any team can ever take, really, going into the playoffs. Obviously, the Cowboys will be a playoff team this year, barring a massive collapse, which would be um, a really unlikely, I would say, at this point. But, uh, yeah, I would definitely say I'm really excited for, for Eagles-Cowboys on Sunday night. Usually the, the marquee games don't really fire me up like that, but an Eagles-Cowboys matchup, you can never really complain about that. Um, while we're on the topic, let's talk about the Eagles. Uh, what was, I think, sold to be the game of Sunday turned out to not be a very good game to watch at all. Um, obviously, we did see the Eagles come out very, very hot in this one. The first quarter, if you had just watched the first quarter, turn off the game, you would have thought, okay, Eagles are going to dominate this game. They should win by double digits. Not the case. Um, it it kind of turned around uh, the second the second quarter started. Uh, the 49ers offense really started picking things up. We did see really good production out of everybody on the, the roster, pretty much, whether it was Christian McCaffrey, 17-93 and a touchdown. Debo Samuel, massive game, three TDs for him. Uh, we even saw George Kittle got in the action. Uh, Brandon Ayuk, always reliable with the short yardage targets, whereas on the Eagles side, uh, maybe not as ideal of a game. I, another theme that we've been talking about multiple times this season, the run game for the Eagles was essentially non-existent from start to finish in the game. Even Jalen Hurts with his, the tush pushes, they're fine and everything. But outside of that, um, not really getting anything, whether it was Gainwell, not whether it was DeAndre Swift. Um, so you would kind of expect that to be something that they look at moving forward. Um, on the Eagles side, before we talk about the 49ers, because obviously it's hard to say anything bad about the 49ers in this one, uh, was there anything you could take away positively from the Eagles out of a, you know, you lose by 23. It's hard to think of anything good, but there had to be something positive to come away from this game, correct? Yeah, I think you probably just look at, you know, their top two receivers of A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith have been two of the top, you know, wide receiver duos uh, in the NFL this year. Um, both of them were really productive again in this game. It's funny, Devontae Smith has kind of come up like just short of 100 yards a couple times. There was like a mic'd up moment where he was like, I'd rather have 98 yards than 99. I'm like right there in this game, he had 96. So I don't know if he's thrilled about that, but did find his way into the end zone too. So, um, you know, it is good that they were able to kind of go at the Niners secondary a little bit. You know, I think Charverius Ward, he kind of had a good battle there with AJ Brown at different points uh, in times. But, um, you know, I think that they were still uh, able to, to move the football through the air. Now, like you said, the ground game was really bad, tough game for uh, DeAndre Swift, who has been really good at times this year. And I think that's something that may be kind of long-term concerning for the Eagles. These are two of the best defensive lines in the NFL when you look at San Francisco and Philadelphia. But the fact that the Niners were able to run the ball, um, you know, without too much struggle, they were really consistent about getting it to McCaffrey. And yeah, you give Kyle Shanahan a lot of credit for the way he is creative about um, you know running the ball and, and their run concepts and pre-snap motion and getting Kyle Juszczyk involved and all the fun things that you know that you're going to get with the 49ers but the Eagles were really not able to have that I think that could be something of concern there hasn't been as much creativity I would say out of the Eagles this year they've actually been near the bottom in terms of pre-snap motion last year under Shane Steichen they had a lot more run pass option plays than we've seen this year uh, so far so I think that the Eagles you know they need to kind of manufacture a little bit more offense and the thing is they were doing this with their full set of offensive linemen you know, there's been games where Lane Johnson's been out or Cam Jurgens, but they were all out there and unable to really kind of, um, you know, get much push off the ball against this 49ers defensive line. So I think that side of things is a little concerning uh, for the Eagles, you know, if they have that future potential rematch um, with the Niners uh, in the playoffs. But um, you definitely give the Niners their credit. Debo Samuel had spoke a lot of talk before this game and he really delivered uh, only four catches, but he was dynamic. Two touchdowns, was taking screens and uh, making things happen and uh, even had a couple of rushes in this game, including a rushing 
touchdown um, for Debo Samuel. So uh, Brock Purdy was was slinging the ball as well. It was a kind of a tough start for him the first two drives, but really settled in. Wasn't necessarily big plays, taking shots down the field, but just kind of methodical rhythm on time, accurate passing. So um, that's kind of what we've seen out of Brock Purdy on the good side. And, and he certainly was very good uh, in this game, especially, uh, you know, after quarter number one. So uh, definitely a domination. The Eagles kind of got handed to him a little bit. It seemed like um, this was potentially coming given the last few weeks. You know, you could really argue with a strong case that the last four weeks, they probably should not have won any of those games needing big second half comeback. So uh, a blowout loss, maybe it kind of humbles them, puts them back in their own seat, keeps them hungry a little bit um, before that big matchup this week against their big rival, the Dallas Cowboys on the road. Uh, just before we move on, any concerns at all about Jalen Hurts' injury? Uh, we did see him. You could tell that it's he's clearly not been 100% pretty much all the year, or at least a large portion of the year. And it definitely showed in this one. Any concerns moving forward? And I will add, end of the season, as long as the Eagles can get through the next couple of weeks, you get the Giants twice and the Cardinals in the, the year. I would assume that Jalen Hurts, if the Eagles are in a decent position, will not be playing in um, – the full three games like he's not gonna have to play the four quarters against the Giants but uh, any concerns about Jalen Hurts and his injuries I think it's more for me on the durability side he did leave this game to go into concussion protocol and, and came back um, you know, quickly for Mariota, but I, I think it's just the little things. He does do a very good job of protecting himself when he does scramble. He, he's very good about sliding, but he's also very involved in the tush push. And you're taking quite a few shots, obviously, you know, with big, big, bad defensive tackles that are upset about it. You know, I'm sure in the middle of those piles, they're probably taking some shots at Jalen Hurts, uh, especially if they can't get him down, um, you know, for a sack in the backfield. So I think that that's probably the concern. We've seen times where, you know, maybe there's a, like a lower body. He's not moving quite as well. He's hobbling out there. We know he's tough. He doesn't want to come out of the game and, and he kind of just battles through it but I think it's more of the durability uh with Hertz that he does do a good job of it but he's just going to kind of inevitably to be taking a lot of shots and, and guys are on the defense are, are you know going to go out there and try to hit him hard if they have the opportunity to so I think that's kind of the big thing that you just kind of have in the back of your head it's like man we, we really need Jalen Hurts out there uh we need him healthy and uh he you know fortunately is at this point in time but um you know as the you know as it gets colder and, and the games continue to get bigger I think that um it's definitely something to monitor but I think he'll be fine at least for this game game against Dallas yeah I think you're pretty spot on there it was a little bit concerning to see him come out of the game because you ne really never want to see a quarterback go into concussion protocol it always feels like quarterbacks especially um, there's a little bit more of care taken on those angles it would have been really tough to see him miss it but uh, thankfully he is back and will be fine likely I uh, want to touch on the other primetime games this week uh, outside of the Thursday night game Sunday night we saw a matchup that I I will take the stand on this one and say I was talking I was talking trash before this game. Uh, I was very surprised that a Packers Chiefs game ended up being the the Sunday night matchup. I was surprised that they didn't um they, they could have shifted off of this for for multiple other games it would have felt fine, but it ended up being a pretty decent game, maybe not super high scoring, but we did see the Packers beat the Chiefs 27-19. Jordan Love uh, has after I would say stumbling a little bit throughout the middle of the season after the first couple weeks. Uh, it, there were a lot of question marks there the last three weeks, especially against the Chargers uh, in Detroit and then against the Chiefs. He has been fairly good, if not great. I think you could say at times he shows flashes of being like maybe a top 10, top 15 quarterback in the league uh, for a long time. And there's other times where he makes these mistakes. Where you're like, oh, right. Young quarterback, kind of still the same deal there. Uh, just in general, though, a massive, massive victory for the Packers. I will not. Uh, you can't understate that enough. Uh, given the competition, they have put themselves into a playoff spot after being they were at three and six just a couple weeks ago. A couple big victories have them in the what I would say the driver's seat to at least make the playoffs. Uh, given the teams around them, 
Uh, first off, before we talk about the Chiefs and their their really underwhelming season so far, because I think it has been a really underwhelming season, um, out of the Packers, it's been a, an impressive turnaround. Winning close games against good teams is something you have to do to make the playoffs, and the Packers have really shown they can do that, at least in the last couple weeks. Yeah, I, I think you really specifically look at these last two games they've had, this one at home against KC and on Thanksgiving Day at Detroit. Um, you know, you say they don't win those two games against teams that for sure will be in the playoffs. They're sitting at 4-8 and eight and tied with the Chicago Bears versus where, a spot where they're at now where they're tied 6-6 six and six with the Minnesota Vikings who don't have their starting quarterback. So uh, I think that there's a lot of optimism for the Packers. Their schedule coming up is pretty light. I know we'll talk about that in our questions. But, um, you know, these last two games, I think before that, we'd be looking at the Packers and be like, oof, gosh, this is going to be kind of tough for them. But um, winning those two games puts them in a spot where, yeah, they're right in that mix in a weak NFC to, you know, be a wild card team. Uh, and, you know, they're very much uh, in that mix. And I think Christian Watson uh, specifically is a guy who's kind of turned it around these last two weeks, three touchdowns, including two uh, this past Sunday against the Chiefs. So, um, you know, it was a really kind of slow start, kind of weird. We saw some flashes for him, the former second round pick, um, you know, as a rookie last year. And then here his sophomore year really got off to a slow start, wasn't too involved in that offense. Um, but these last two weeks, he's really kind of burst onto the scene a little bit more. And, and made some impact plays for the Packers. So um, that's been huge for them. And uh, two marquee wins, got to give them a lot of confidence going into a little bit lighter schedule the rest of the season for them in, in Detroit and early, or in December, sorry, and uh, early January. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be very interesting to see just what they do uh, down the stretch. There are still going to be some tough games. Never easy to beat the Bears, although it does seem like the Packers have owned the Bears. Uh, though it doesn't matter who the quarterback is, uh, but a game against Minnesota, on New Year's Eve Sunday night could end up being really, really massive given the fact that both teams are tied at six and six and both in wildcard spots at this point. Uh, flip it over to the Chiefs really quickly. Another very underwhelming performance, another really weird performance, I think you can say. Like a team that just, this is not Chiefs football, um, especially offensively. It seems like it's really kind of caught up to them, uh, either the lack of weapons or Maybe Pat Mahomes isn't super comfortable with the offensive line, although he doesn't really get sacked very often. He finds a way out of the sacks a lot of the time. He does still get pressured uh, quite a bit. There is uh, always a need to get bodies near Mahomes, make him roll out, uh, force the receivers to make plays. We saw once again, the receivers were not making plays for the Chiefs. And again, end of the game, as you expect on a Sunday night football game, RK, refereeing was shambles in, in the final two minutes. I don't want to talk about it a whole lot, but uh, there was a play where there was an unnecessary roughness on Jonathan Owens at the sideline, which is very clearly never an unnecessary roughness. Uh, we're going to the point where we're overprotecting quarterbacks, I think, in the league now at this point, which is fine, um, great and all. But that is a really, really important play. Um, it ended up taking them from their own 40 to the Packers 45. And then the play after, or a couple plays after, uh, I've actually, the, the next play, we saw Mar Marquez Valdez-Scantling um, drop a pass, and then a couple plays later, a deep ball up the field. Pass interference probably should have been called. I think that you, you would agree with me on this one. Uh, wasn't end game, kind of just how it goes in the NFL. Um, but just a really weird game, all things considered. The Chiefs have not played good football uh, for large stretches of the year. They've now lost three of the last five, including games to Denver and Green Bay on the road. Obviously, a loss to the Eagles is not that big of a deal, but when you're losing teams like the Broncos and the Packers, when you're supposed to be the Super Bowl contender is supposed to be the best team out of the AFC. Um, uh, is there cause for worry here if you're a Chiefs fan, uh, Kansas City Nation here? I think, 
I think if you're the Chiefs, you, you obviously have Patrick Mahomes, so how much of a panic can you really have? But I think the rest of the team is a little concerning. You've been getting good play out of Isaiah Pacheco running the ball, and obviously Travis Kelsey, you know what you're going to get. But I think the receiver room has been the kind of big concern, and maybe Rasheed Rice has been solid more so than we thought out of the you know the rookie second-round pick. But um, it's just not a great you know wide receiver room. The weapons are not you know plethora um, from what Mahomes has obviously had in, in the past. So um, you're kind of relying on him to be kind of Superman in, in a lot of these games. And yeah, if there's a guy to rely on to be Superman, it's probably Patrick Mahomes and you can move on and, and be okay at eight and four. And no one wants to play you in the playoffs no matter what. But uh, in terms of, oh, this team is a lock. They're going to win the AFC again. They're going to repeat as Super Bowl champions. I'm not necessarily so sure that's the case, uh, especially when you consider, you know, what is probably their highest quality win this year. You probably have to go back to when they won at Jacksonville, um, you know, way back. Um, you know, earlier this season, if we're really looking at that. So um, definitely interesting. Uh, you know, it's kind of a game you would have expected Kansas City to come out on top of, but um, they were unable to do so uh, in Lambeau on uh, on Sunday Night Football. Yeah, definitely an interesting thought there, uh, just in the AFC in general. As you were talking about the top of the AFC, we had a couple teams that should be at the top of the AFC, or at least a team that is at the top of the AFC with Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, it looked like they were actually going to take over uh, the, the lead of the AFC, which is crazy to say, like the Jacksonville Jaguars were um, maybe a quarterback injury away from winning, uh, being at the top of the AFC, being the number one seed after last week, ended up being a big Bengals victory. I think that we should definitely shout out Jake Browning here, a super, super efficient game, 32 of 37, 354 and one TD. Uh, he is one of 54 quarterbacks that have played an NFL game this year, which is disgusting to say because there's not 32 good quarterbacks in the league so we've seen a lot of bad quarterback play but I will I'm going to give Jake Browning all the respect in the world obviously we saw a Trevor Lawrence injury on the other side CJ Beathard came in did his job I would say got them to overtime uh, didn't end up winning it for them obviously uh, the Bengals just had a really timely performance out of Jake Browning and a really really strong performance out of Jamar Chase Joe Mixon the guy stepped up a really really big victory for a Bengals team that I think a lot of people were saying season was over, season is cooked. Now sitting at six and six, maybe still in a in a less desirable position than you would hope to be if you were the Bengals. But uh, this is like a season saving win potentially. I would say I don't know if you necessarily agree with that because there is still a lot of football to be played. Uh, but it's gonna be it's tough sledding regardless. The Bengals have a really tough schedule moving forward. They lost their last three. A uh, loss to Jacksonville pretty much rules them out, cooks their season. So I, we're we're still seeing some competition. Uh, Jake Browning, man, like I would have never expected it after seeing what he did in college. Like, hey, props to him. Really incredible. Yeah, no, I'm I'm right there with you. I didn't think this was coming for uh for Jake Browning, but helps out when you have Jamar Chase and he can just make a 76 yard <laughs> touchdown happen just by chucking one up there for him. So that was obviously a big play. But yeah, by the end of this thing, you're watching CJ Beathard against Jake Browning. It felt like a Rose Bowl we never had between Iowa and Washington, more so than an NFL Monday night football game. But uh nevertheless, I mean these two teams are absolutely very much in that mix for being playoff teams, and it's crazy to say, but Cincinnati is last in the AFC North at just six and six, but the teams ahead of them, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, guess what? Their quarterbacks are injured. So obviously that window and door um, is a little bit more open than you would have expected it to be um, if you have a backup quarterback this time of year. And for Jacksonville, you know, they probably figured that um, it would kind of be, you know, easy pickings for them to win the AFC South in a year where Tennessee is four and eight, but all of a sudden Indianapolis and Houston at seven and five right on their tail. So, um, you know, Jacksonville going to need to kind of figure things out quickly with CJ Beathard. Um, you know, obviously Doug Peterson has dealt with backup quarterbacks before. Shout out to his time with the Eagles, obviously, but 
Um, going to be a tough task, probably relying heavily on Travis Etienne, if I had to guess, uh, the rest of this way. So we'll see how teams uh, kind of adjust to that um, on a Jaguars front. But at least for them, still uh, in a driver's seat, um, you know, in first in the AFC South, have an opportunity to host a home playoff game. But um, still some tough opponents left for them. These next two at Cleveland against Baltimore, uh, kind of on a uh, AFC North tour right now um, after just uh, coming up short against the Bengals. Yeah, and we do think that Trevor Lawrence probably misses both of those games. I think, you know, high ankle sprain, he's not recovering that quickly. This is kind of an NFL thing. You expect these guys to miss two weeks if they have a high ankle sprain, regardless of the severity, maybe more. Uh, so probably not ideal for the Jaguars, but they're still in a decent enough position to where they can think, oh, you know, we can probably sneak into the playoffs regardless of what happens. I did want to talk about the Bengals really quickly, their schedule. They've got five playoff teams left. Um Really not the position you want to be in, even with a Jake Browning victory after Joe Burrow getting out. Um, it's going to be, I think we're set up for like an, an incredibly, incredibly fun AFC playoff playoff race here, given the fact that at this current point, RK, the Houston Texans, who I, I've really enjoyed watching play football this year, and the Buffalo Bills are both out of playoff spots behind Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Indy. Obviously, we mentioned, actually, all three of these teams are missing their quarterbacks currently, although Gardner Minshew has been very good for Indianapolis. Um, are, are you at all like a, as fired up as I am about watching the last like we, we could be in for a, a last week of the season, all the games on at the same time, um, really good vibes potentially for a week 18 masterclass. Or at least most of the games will be on at the same time. Obviously, they'll throw them on at 1 p.m. Uh, we should be set up for what in, in the last couple of years maybe hasn't feel, felt so competitive. This has been an incredibly competitive year out of the NFL. Yeah, absolutely. It has. And, you know, even you factor in teams kind of on the outside looking in like Buffalo at six and six intriguing team, LA Chargers, still an intriguing team at, at five and seven. Um, and then you've got so many surprising teams when you look at, say, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Houston, all at seven and five, uh, even throw in Denver at six and six in that mix. So, um, you know, some teams that we were surprised aren't locks to be in there and some teams that have, you know, certainly overperformed expectations, um, you know, through 12 games. Absolutely. Uh, a very, very fun week in the NFL. Obviously, we will talk about the NFL again next week. We should have some really, really fun matchups uh, going on across the league. We have some rivalry matchups, so always exciting there. But RK, the biggest news of the week, the most exciting news of the week um, ended up being, uh, I, I guess what I'm going to call a scam for specific teams, because I do believe that we were, we were in a really bad position here. We have the college football playoff set after a very, very strong week of conference championship games where uh, I would say the majority were competitive. Obviously, I don't even think we have to talk about Iowa football here, RK, but just really quickly, Michigan beat Iowa uh, 26-0. They sneak in um, no issues at all, I would say, against Iowa. I was expecting maybe a little bit of offense out of the Iowa Hawkeyes. Obviously, the team totals for both halves were set at 0.5. They did not get a point in the game. So if you bet the under on 0.5, hey, congratulations. You are stronger than I am. You are... You're a real dog yeah. on that one. And we're going to see when Michigan plays Alabama after Alabama beats Georgia 27-24. Let's talk about Alabama-Georgia really quickly. Obviously, I don't think this was necessarily the game that people were expecting to see out of this one. I wouldn't have told you that it was going to be an Alabama uh, lead at halftime. They were up 10 at half, 17-7. Um, not the greatest performance out of anybody, pretty much. I would say this was a defensive masterclass, even for a 51-point game. Uh, we did not see really a whole lot out of Jalen Milrow offensively. He was kind of sort of just okay. Uh, the run game was not there for him. So when you force him to pass the ball, he doesn't do a whole lot. But on the other hand, offensively, the Georgia Bulldogs were very, very mediocre. Um, surprisingly enough, I think that they 
I, I, you might not agree with me, but I think them forcing Lad McConkey and Brock Bowers out there with their injuries hurt them more than helped them. And I think obviously you're throwing out potential. I mean, obviously Brock Bowers goes in the first round of the draft without a doubt. Lad McConkey should go pretty high in the draft as well. Um, is there any rationale that like agrees with me and saying maybe, you know, I'm, I'm expecting Georgia has four and five stars behind Brock Bowers and behind Lad McConkey. Maybe we get fresh legs, guys that are in a little bit better health situations out there in an important game like this, rather than throwing to Lad McConkey, who like was limping all game, RK. Like there were points at the game where he looked like he was going through hell on the field, coming off the field. He would go off, lay on the ground, grab his, grab his all over pretty much. It felt like there were multiple injuries that he was dealing with just in general, a, a very, very strange situation there, but we did see an Alabama victory. Uh, any takeaways from this? And, and again, you know, obviously we'll talk about the four teams that did make the playoff, but just in general, uh, Alabama does it again. Somehow they, they managed to all, it's it's bad for my brain, but I guess college football, it's it's the best case scenario here. Yeah, I felt like this game it obviously was the SEC title game, but it felt more like a national championship game with how it kind of played out. Um, like you said, not necessarily the most pretty offenses, but these defenses were super dialed and, and locked in. So um, it made for, you know, really entertaining uh, football back and forth um, with Georgia trying to make that comeback and, and coming up a little bit short. But um, yeah, I mean, a, a classic SEC title game, you know, two of the top teams in the country. I think, you know, we'll obviously dive into this conversation of the, the committee's four teams, but I think you could very argue that these teams are number one and number two in terms of like scariest opponents of who you would not want to face. Uh, if you're any other team in college football I don't want to play Georgia and I don't want to play Alabama and it turns out that you know is winner stays alive and, and loser stays home and unfortunately for Georgia you're the number one team in the country you haven't lost in you know two and a half years and and all of a sudden you know you're not even able to compete for a national championship for a three-point loss um you know against that what this point in time is clearly your biggest rival so um just kind of a a tough finish for Georgia there and, and Kirby Smart but um yeah uh, the injury side of it, it it's unfortunate um with Bowers and McConkey, but you know, I, I think Alabama deserves a lot of credit too, especially their secondary. And uh, I know Dallas Turner had a sack. We'll see him in the NFL probably pick pretty high, um, you know, this upcoming April. So um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of talent on both sides and, um, you know, Georgia just came up three points short. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is crazy to think that we are going into a college football playoff without Georgia, given the fact that they won 29 straight. Um, the teams, other teams that made it over Georgia, uh, we have Washington who beat Oregon in a very, very close game. Uh, it was crazy to see all the hype on Oregon coming into this one. Uh, Oregon ended up uh, even further away from what the line was when we first talked about this. It ended up being 10 points, uh, and they would end up going on to lose to Washington 34-31. Obviously, a pretty good quarterback battle, uh, but I, I would say the most surprising part of the game was Washington's run game. And I mean, maybe not just the run game in general, but just Dylan Johnson in general, um, productive all the way over, touched the ball 30 sometimes, uh, ended up having 150 yards on the ground, two touchdowns rushing, and then another touchdown throwing the ball, uh, which is just crazy to say, very, very productive game in general. And on the other hand, uh, Bo Nix did all that he could, had a pretty solid game, all things considered, but we didn't see anything out of Bucky Irving, who I think you would have said coming to this game if you weren't profiling the quarterback versus quarterback matchup, a Bucky Irving versus Dylan Johnson matchup at running back was the most exciting aspect of this, maybe offensively. Um, a really bad game for Bucky Irving and the Oregon run game in general outside of Bo Nix's 140-yard scamper. They didn't do a whole lot there. Uh, any takeaways from this at all? Are you surprised at all to see Washington just continue to roll and continue to find ways to win games? Yeah, I think a little bit for sure. 
Um, you mentioned Oregon was a big time favorite and, um, you know, we knew we were going to get some high scoring, you know, jam packed action. And, and like you said, uh, Dylan Johnson really delivered Michael Penix over 300 yards. Um, you know, the receivers for Washington, Romo Dunze, you know, continues to be one of the most dominant players in college football uh, this season. Uh, and and Jalen McMillan as well uh, also had, um, you know, well over 100 yards for him receiving for for Washington. So, uh, yeah, 13 and 0. I mean, yeah, this is a damn good team. I, I think that uh, obviously you beat Oregon twice. Um, you know, that deserves you a lot of credit and, and a potential matchup with Texas. I think that's almost kind of a similar opponent. I think Oregon and Texas are similar. They can put up a lot of offensive points, be some fireworks, but Washington has, you know, proven they've been able to win these games this season. So um, I, you know, I think this is going to be a heck of a game. I'm glad that these two teams are matched up with each other because um, it makes for a great semifinal matchup, um, you know, in a, in a fun year, Washington running the table, Texas only one loss to their rival or Oklahoma, but um, you know, back on top of the big 12 uh, for, for the last time before they go to the SEC. And uh, yeah, it may have been a little bit of a down year for the big 12. I think it kind of was like a foregone conclusion that, um, you know, Texas was going to make that big jump from seven to three. If, if they beat Oklahoma state who didn't even, even necessarily have the greatest of seasons. Uh, I think that you get a little bit more credibility if you beat everybody on their schedule, they didn't even have a chance to play Oklahoma in this game, for example, but um, you know, Texas, they can put up some points. They've got, you know, a couple of good receivers over there too. So um, hopefully that makes for the Washington, Texas game as, you know, another game in the thirties or forties, a, you know, good old shootout um, between Penix and, and uh, Quinn Ewers. I think it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, you definitely are spot on there. That is very clearly the most exciting aspect of this is just the, the sheer firepower, first round level talent coming out of both Texas and Washington uh, in the receiving core. Uh, it's going to be a really, really fun matchup. I guess what we got to do here is just talk about uh, the teams that did not end up getting in, starting off with Florida State. Uh, I think that you and I are both in agreement that uh, if you go 13-0 and you win a Power 5 conference, you at least deserve respect. And at this point, Florida State received zero respect. Um, it is, it's a really tough circumstance given the lack of quarterback and also a really not fun win over the Louisville. <laughs> like, let's just be honest. It was a really, really bad game. Uh, offensively, you could tell that Florida State was not prepared for this Brock Glenn uh, three-star freshman not good, very, very bad offensive game there, but they did end up getting a decent run attack, enough out of Trey Benson and gang to win the game, do whatever they needed to do, go undefeated. They beat everybody they needed to. The committee comes around and says, Hey guys, we're going to, we're going to, we're kicking you out. Obviously they are some principles in there to where they have set themselves up for this situation. Uh, if a team has a major injury that needs to be considered, but uh, just in general, RK, you go 13 and 0, you do everything right, you win two games against quality opponents without your quarterback, um against Florida first and then Louisville in the conference championship and then you get left out for a team that lost a game. What are we thinking? Is it it's a little crazy, is it not? It's crazy. We knew it was going to be crazy. I think this year, uh, as compared to any other year of the college football playoff, we, you know, have always have debate, but I mean, this one was, was tough. It, you know, you knew somebody was going to get screwed and you had to justify it somehow. And I, my prediction was, I thought they were going to put Florida state in over Alabama as that four, because it's harder to justify against it. What are you going to do? You want all your games. You won every game you played in the power five. You won your conference championship. It's never happened before that you've been left out, but I think the committee was all sitting together and they were watching these games uh, on Saturday and they were watching Florida State play. And uh, even though they were currently ranked number four and in a spot and beat a you know 14th ranked Louisville team, they were like, ah, 
who is the better football team? That's our job. We have to pick the better football team, and that answer is Alabama. I think probably everybody that was watching these games, and yeah, recency bias has a little bit to do with it, sure, but Alabama's the better football team than Florida State. You know, just, you know, if you watch enough football, you know that. That's I don't think many people would really disagree with that at this point in time, but because of that, now Florida State, you know, they're left to the side, and it's unfortunate that this had to happen from Jordan Travis. I know he put out a message like, man, if only I got injured earlier and we saw an opportunity for us to win these games with backup quarterbacks, uh, maybe they would have gotten a little bit more respect. But um, it's just unfortunate. And uh, I, I think even taking it a step further, if the committee wanted to get even spicier on this, if they are that committed to picking the four best teams, I'm going back to it. Georgia is the top four team in the country. Georgia would kick the shit out of Washington and Texas. And I even think Michigan, too, who's number one right now. Like Alabama and Georgia are the top two teams. If you're that committed to saying we're picking the top teams in the country, I get everyone saying, oh, well, why even play these games? You know, you know who the top teams are. You're just picking the team who has the better point spread, SEC bias. It's like they've obviously earned a reason for that. Georgia and Alabama are the two best teams in the country. The SEC title game was the national championship game. And it's unfortunate that Georgia was left out. I thought Kirby Smart made a great point. He's like, there's no way in hell that you can be a committee watching football all year and tell me Georgia is not a top four team in the country. There's no way. There's not a chance that can be the case. And, you know, there's all sorts of crazy arguments and the recency bias side of it. And it's like, well, how far can that go? You know, Oklahoma beat Texas. We're not putting Oklahoma in over Texas. You know, you, you need to kind of have a little bit of some time where you're like, all right, you know, if our job really is to pick the four best teams in the country, which they made a statement in doing that by putting Alabama in, they, you got to take it a step further. How are you leaving Georgia out? I, I thought Georgia is a better team than Texas who lost a game. They each lost one game. And uh, I, I think that Georgia definitely has a gripe here as much as Florida state does. Um, you know, I, I think the committee in historically, obviously they've just kind of gone with the most deserving teams, but um, you know, if they're making the statement this year, I even think I double down, I go further. I put Georgia in uh, over Texas uh, in this situation. So uh, that's obviously not what they ended up doing, but um, yeah, crazy, crazy uh, reveal announcement uh, for, the top four teams you know this year more than any we've seen yeah I mean obviously we're at a point where this is never going to happen again because we will have an expanded field but uh, this was the year that really showed that we needed an expanded field that four teams yeah. was not enough and, and I do also just want to mention um, it's I, I as a Miami fan I shouldn't feel bad for an FSU team it's a big big rivalry but you have to sit here and feel bad for uh, not only the FSU team but the FSU fans um, coaching staff, anybody involved with Florida State football, they've done nothing wrong. They've officially, you literally can't can't do any better than undefeated. It's impossible to be that way. Um, it's really nice that we're going to have an expanded playoff coming up in the future. I do, however, think um, there's one thing I want to talk about really quick before we move on from college football. I think the SEC bias, we need to step away from the SEC bias a little bit because there's a lot of bad SEC football teams. I don't think people really understand just how bad some of the SEC football teams are. Vanderbilt is very regularly worse than I would say just about any ACC team every year. Vanderbilt doesn't do a whole lot of anything ever. Uh, teams like South Carolina and Arkansas are pretty regularly mediocre. We saw Auburn, uh, you know, great, great competition against Alabama. Auburn lost to New Mexico State, like, the SEC is really not that great. They have the top-end talent with Alabama and Georgia. Obviously, a team like Mizzou it was successful this year. We see some some really talented players like Luther, Luther Burden um, have produced a really, really fun numbers, really, really fun game this year. But outside of those like three teams, and maybe you throw an Ole Miss, like LSU was not that great this year. Tennessee was not that great this year. Kentucky underwhelmed. Florida underwhelmed really bad. Florida's not even going to a bowl game. That's how mediocre Florida was this year. Like, 
maybe we need to step off the SEC bias a little bit at this point, at least for now. Obviously, in the future, it's going to they're they're going to add their teams. They're going to keep adding teams probably after this next group that comes in. But at this point, SEC bias shouldn't really even exist because the SEC is like not that much better as a conference than say the Pac or say the ACC or say that it just. I'm at a point where I'm kind of at a loss for words that we're still hyping up the SEC as if it's better than like the Big Ten, who I think if you put Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State up against those three teams, like you're you're, you're not that far off. Like obviously, it just the the it means more. We get it, but I I, I think we need to step away from the SEC bias. I feel a little bit bad for uh, Florida State football. It's it's a really really tough stretch for them. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It, it's costing that university millions and millions and millions of dollars by coming up short in a college football playoff. That obviously is extremely significant. But I think the depth of the SEC, it's fair to question that. But I think the top end talent, you know, we know Georgia and Alabama. These are the two teams in hand. Sure. Here. These, these teams are studs. So, um, you know, I, I think they would, you know, I, I was even a little surprised that Michigan was favored uh, coming out in the line against Alabama, to be honest with you, a one versus four. I know it was pretty close, like a one or two point spread. But, um, you know, I figured it's like, man, it's just roll tide uh, all day uh, with these kinds of matchups. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, it's tough because, uh, you know, you know, someone was getting screwed here. And, and like I said, I think the committee was just looking at themselves and, and talking about these games when they were all together. And they're like, look, we got to pick the best teams. Alabama's better than Florida State right now. We're just going to do it. Fair enough. I guess I can't argue with the professionals, although everybody argued with the professionals this past weekend. Uh, we will see some fun college football action moving forward. I'm guessing. RK, we're not going to be doing a whole lot of college football talk for the next couple of weeks, considering bowl season is as irrelevant as ever now. It really means nothing to be in a bowl game that isn't a playoff bowl game. Uh, so that will be, uh, we'll have a couple weeks off of the college football. But what we do have out of nowhere, RK, is some baseball talk. Winter meetings have been going on the past couple of days. We haven't seen the big fishes move just yet. We're still waiting to see what Shohei Otani does. Uh, it's been rumored that he's meeting with everybody pretty much. He's met with the Dodgers, he's met with the Jays. Teams like the Yankees have checked in unsuccessfully. It does not look like he's going to be heading to either of the New York teams, uh, but there is a lot of interesting information out of the MLB. But we did have a couple of trades, uh, including the Yankees adding Alex Verdugo from Boston for a couple uh, right-handed pitchers, mostly younger guys. Not a whole lot to talk about there. It was rumored, though, that Verdugo was going to be moved again to the Padres for Juan Soto. Not the case, although it does look like the Yankees are the front runner to add Juan Soto. Should be something to talk about next week on the podcast. I would assume that we will have that information coming out, uh, I would say, by Friday or Saturday of this week. But uh, just in general, the Yankees seem to be in a, po in a place where they want to uh, rebuild the team or at least revamp their offensive um, depth given the, the woes, the lack of ability they've had. Adding Alex Verdugo is the first step in that direction. Um, it can't be much worse than what they were doing last year with Aaron Hicks and who got cut and then a bunch of random young players filling out their outfield. Uh, adding Alex Verdugo, who's consistent, will get on base. Uh, a polarizing player that fans should like uh, after not liking him for the last couple of years. Not the worst pickup for the Yankees, I would say, I guess. 
Yeah, like you said, it's better than it was. Uh, you said, you know, Hicks, who they cut, and then it was Harrison Bader, who they cut. So, like, there's a theme here. The often the outfielders they had for the Yankees were not good last year. Um, you know, by the end of it, they were, they were playing a lot of their prospects, and we've seen a little bit out of Jason Dominguez before he got injured. So, it was just nothing was going right for the Yankees in their outfield. Verdugo is clearly an upgrade on that. It's kind of an interesting fit to me. Um, you know, you like the concept of getting more left-handed bats in the lineup for the Yankees with the short porch uh, in right field, but Verdugo not necessarily the most, you know, power hitter in the the world either so I think his value is more so served on the defensive side uh, if he can take over center field and uh, maybe be a guy that can be more of a, a contact hitter um, for them uh, you know than they had you know, with the other plethora of guys that they moved on from so it's interesting you know obviously Red Sox Yankees they don't make a ton of trades they this is only seventh trade they've made in the last 51 years which is uh, crazy but not really that crazy when you consider their rivalry so um, you know Red Sox uh, kind of interesting obviously he was uh, one of the big centerpieces in that Mookie Betts trade a couple years ago um, uh, now the Red Sox kind of moving on from Verdugo uh, and on to some more pitching arms in their system, which is clearly a need that the Red Sox have. So who knows? This could be something that benefits them, especially when you consider the fact that Verdugo's only got one year left uh, entering the final year before free agency for him. So Red Sox probably said, all right, you know, maybe we're not looking to re-sign this guy long term. Uh, let's improve our pitching depth. Uh, something very much of need uh, at this point in time. So a need for a need move between two of the biggest rivals in all sports right here. Yeah, absolutely. It will be fun. As a, as a Dodger fan, obviously, I got to see Verdugo play early on in his career. Uh, should be fun. Provides a lot of interesting moments. Will also let you down at times. So, um, you know, kind of lightning in a bottle there, but uh, not the worst thing in the world, given the fact that, uh, as we mentioned, they were outfielding. Um, the depth has been really bad for the last couple of years. We also saw a what I would call a very interesting, nifty move from the Atlanta Braves, adding... Uh, pieces from the Seattle Mariners. They added Jared Kelenic, Marco Gonzalez, who has since been shipped off to Pittsburgh, and Evan White uh, for Jackson Kowar, a former Royals prospect who's been really bad in the MLB so far, and Cole Phillips, who's a prospect who hasn't made it up yet. Um, my perspective on this, and I don't know necessarily if you would agree with me on this. Obviously, it's Kelenic. The rest of the players in the deal are kind of just they kind of just exist. Evan White maybe ends up as a platoon bat, um, somebody who's seen some MLB action. Uh, it's definitely a cap dump out of Seattle, who is on just about everybody. has been rumored on just about everybody, all the high-end free agents. Uh, they love spending money. They love making deals. Uh, are you at all? First off, I, I want to mention uh, Atlanta, Adam Kellenick. A guy strikes out a lot. Now you can't pitch around Kellenick if you throw him in that lineup. Likely a platoon bat at the very least. But, man, like, Adding adding a guy who's still very young, a lot to go, could progress a lot. And we've seen the Braves time and time again add players who maybe didn't produce where they were or weren't producing as well where they were. And then all of a sudden they end up in Atlanta and they, like we saw Matt Olson last year and Sean Murphy last year. Like it, this is a no brainer for the Atlanta Braves. If you get Kellenic and he lives up to even where anywhere close to what his potential is, you're talking about scary, scary, scary lineup, even more so than last year. Yeah, no doubt. And and we've seen the ups and downs with Kelnick uh, in his career. You know, there could be potential where, you know, you've got a really good team in Atlanta. Some guys start to jump him all of a sudden, you know, oh, he's not playing as much. Do we send him down to the minors? You're kind of back in the same spot he was at earlier in his career with the Mariners. But there's obviously that high upside that, OK, maybe we could get a guy who hits, you know, 20, 25, 30 home runs for us, um, you know, and just kind of a under the radar type deal at the start of, uh, of winter meetings here. So I think, you know, Atlanta, they've been a good team for a little while here in the National League, but they continue to stay good by adding these veterans 
veterans in the offseason and you're like, oh, gosh, this guy's on the Braves. Like, you know, and then he starts to pop off for him. Even Marco Gonzalez, you know, he's been a guy who's been a good strikeout pitcher at times. He's gotten rocks for sure, but uh, he's got good stuff. Maybe you can throw him in the back half of your rotation, maybe use him as a long reliever. You've got some options uh, in, in that uh, side of the deal as well. So, um, you know, the Braves, they've uh, been great in terms of their own development, but uh, going out and getting some veterans these last few off seasons, it's big, been a big factor in why they've continued to have a lot of success and um, w- would almost assuredly be uh, the favorite to win the NL East again next year, um, even with the Phillies uh, being right there as well. Yeah, it is interesting. Obviously, we we won't see uh, the Braves are going to make more moves from here, but adding Kellenic is very interesting. Somebody that I wouldn't have anticipated being on the market, just given the fact that um, he was part of a big move just a couple of years ago, uh, a very, very highly touted prospect. At, at one point, we were kind of talking about that Kellenic deal as one that was like an absolute fleece for the Seattle Mariners. Now it looks like maybe Kellenic has, uh, I wouldn't say busted because there's a lot of potential left, still very young, but he hasn't lived up to that just yet. Um, should be a really, really interesting week in baseball ahead of us. I would anticipate next week, RK, um, assuming the Shohei Otani news happens at some point over the next couple of days, because it seems like he's meeting all these teams right now. Uh, we should have next week's podcast could be the heaviest baseball podcast we've had since the World Series or before that, which would be, it's nice having some baseball news. Obviously, we we categorize, categorize the MLB offseason as like a four-month waiting period of of generally pretty disastrous to be a fan of, but I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that we could have a really really fun next couple weeks um are you are you agreeing with me at all or are you thinking this is going to be a dragged out crappy process like every year uh i'm probably more on the latter to be honest with you just the nature of what we've seen in baseball i'm optimistic there's been a lot of tweets there's a lot of smoke a lot of bad reporting in baseball unfortunately uh at very this true point in time too uh clearly you just see tweets all the time where it's like all right this agent texted me and said i want to increase the value of my guy who's not getting any attention can you just put it out there and say 12 teams are interested thanks appreciate it and you move on so yeah it's tough to see that uh, but you know, it's inevitable. So that's baseball for you. Let's just wait until these things happen and then we can break it down. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's just skip everything else going on in baseball. We have a lot of rumors to talk about, but nothing concrete, as you mentioned. So, uh, we will be on what actually happens next week, but we have some hockey news, uh, your favorite time of year, maybe, um, it's world junior time, baby, for those who are, um, in the hockey circle, those listening that enjoy our hockey talks. And we have some preliminary rosters from both Canada and the U.S. national team. Uh, the U.S. national team had 10 first-round selections, in it, including uh, RK. There's going to be a very heavy Chicago Blackhawks tendency on the U.S. Uh, US national team, I believe. And I, you, could, you could correct me on this. I believe we're talking four players from the Chicago Blackhawks on the national team. Um, the Rangers have some some representation as well. The Rangers have two separate players uh, on the team, including the man, the myth, the legend, Gabe Perot, who should be a lot of fun to watch. But uh, just in general, do you want to break down this U.S. national team uh, roster? Anything that you see, anybody that got maybe left off that you would have would have surprised you um, three months ago had you been told this was the case? Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing you bring up. I'll start by kind of breaking down what we've seen uh, out of this team, and it's very forward-heavy. You've got some really, really strong forwards uh, in this draft, a lot of former first-round picks and guys that played through the development team program. Uh, you mentioned a couple of the Blackhawks, Frank Nazar, Oliver Moore, uh, two Blackhawks first-round picks uh, involved with, with Team USA here. We also have Carter Gauthier, Isaac Howard, Rucker McGroarty, uh, Jimmy Snuggerud, Ryan Leonard, Oliver or uh, w- Will Smith, Oliver Moore, Gabe Perot. I mean, it's loaded up front. Um, you're going to have a really, really strong 
strong, um, you know, power play, top six forwards, even uh, some good depth uh, as well. When you look at some of the guys outside of the first round, I think of a guy like Gavin Brindley, for example, um, at the University of Michigan right now, could be really impactful for them um, up front. Uh, Kerry Terrance as well, um, second round pick last year for Anaheim. I think these guys are really, really strong. So this team's going to put up some goals. I think where you're concerned a little bit more, uh, it would be on the back end. Um, there's definitely some some good talent here. Sam Renzel, another Blackhawks first round pick right now at the University of Minnesota, the only first round pick on this back end. But you also have Seamus Casey, Ryan Chesley, Lane Hudson, guys that have been very involved with the uh, U.S. National Team Development Program uh, and are now playing college hockey. So some strong defensemen over there, but um, that's probably the area you uh, are a little bit more concerned about. And then in net, uh, they do have a returner in Trey Augustine, who was on the team last year. Um, still an 05 birth year, was a second round pick last year of the Detroit Red Wings playing at Michigan State. So um, definitely nice to have at least one goalie um, who you have some familiarity with and, and has played well uh, for Team USA in the past. So um, I always like looking at some of the young guys that are put on these teams as well. I think Zeev Boyum uh, is a uh, defenseman right now at the University of Denver, played for the development team program last year. He's eligible for the draft this year and off to a really strong start for uh, one of the top teams in college hockey. And then one thing that is really interesting is you have James Hagens on this roster who isn't even eligible for this 2024 NHL draft. He is a 2025 uh, draft eligible player, has a late birthday uh, in uh, in his year 06, uh, November 06. So he will not be in this upcoming year's draft, but it certainly projects as probably that number one overall pick type player in 2025, committed to Boston College and uh, is almost a two point per game player this year uh, with the development team program. And then kind of on the other part, you mentioned surprising names to be left off. I think without a doubt you have to look at Cole Iserman who is almost assuredly to be a lock to go top five uh, if not even second overall behind Macklin Celebrini who we'll talk about here uh, in a second but uh, off to an incredible start with the development team programs already got 25 goals in, in 21 games for the NTTP this year uh, playing in the USHL and against NCAA talent so uh, very surprising to not see Cole Iserman on this list and them opt to go with James Hagens uh, you know the younger player uh, of the two here both playing for the development team program but um, without a doubt I think Cole Iserman is the most notable name to be left off the uh, Team USA roster here. Yeah, I did see some people complaining about Charlie Stramble getting left off as well. I think there were a lot of people that were sitting there thinking, okay, um, a really, really weak season, I guess, probably did that at Wisconsin. He has has really struggled to start off the season, if I'm not mistaken there. I believe he has yet to score or maybe one goal through 10 games, I, I believe that was, that I was reading earlier. So an interesting aspect there. Uh, flipping over to Canada. Also, RK, Chicago. Blackhawks contingency on the Canada team too. Uh, obviously, I think the defensive core is going to have a couple different Blackhawks prospects on it, but just in general, um, as you mentioned, I want to hear the breakdown, but I want to hear Macklin Celebrini first because it is a really, really interesting aspect of this whole process here. Usually, you would think that you have, um, we were we were in line to potentially have a nice little 1v2 matchup there, and that not being there is maybe sad for those that are world juniors fans um let, let's hear it thoughts on the world can uh, world juniors canada team any anybody there that got left off as well um yeah and curious. and I think it's important to know these are still evaluation camp rosters. So, you know, we're highlighting the guys that pretty much are assuredly locks, but, um, you know, still is a chance that, you know, some guys could change or whatnot. But yeah, starting with Celebrini, obviously uh, the face of this upcoming draft in the NHL 2024 uh, draft eligible has been dominating college hockey is one of the youngest players in college hockey this year at Boston University, 25 points in 15 games uh, for uh, the Terriers. Um, and, and that's coming after last year where he absolutely dominated the USHL uh, again as a very 
very young player, 86 points in 50 games, almost a goal per game, 46 goals uh, in 50 games for Celebrini playing for the Chicago Steel. So uh, he certainly uh, projects as uh, definitely a fun player to watch. It'll be interesting to see his role uh, with Hockey Canada. Obviously, um, you know, we've seen these kind of phenoms play the, you know, Connor Bedards of last year, the Connor McDavid's, you know, they really make them earn their roles, uh, especially, you know, when it comes to uh, playing five on five and, and power play positions. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what role they have Celebrini in, you know, will they have him as a center? He stands six feet tall, 190, definitely has potential to do that, but um, it's a great team outside of that. So I think that'll be the most notable thing as it relates to Celebrini um, for this Hockey Canada, you know, world junior team um, as, you know, pretty much the only kind of, uh, you know, 2024 draft eligible player that will go, um, you know, in the first round or, or very high. Yeah, you know, obviously it is always fun to be able to look at this. I just want to hear, like, are you excited to be able to see so many different Blackhawks prospects on, especially Canada and U.S., because it is, uh, let's just be honest, this is what we're watching for. We're watching for Canada and U.S. Obviously, there are going to be other teams there uh, involved, but when you're looking at NHL prospects, it does seem like Canada and the U.S.A. are generally the ones that are bringing the most um, high-level, highly talented uh, young players. As a Blackhawks fan, it's got to be like Christmas morning almost seeing all these guys listed on the rosters. Obviously, we talked about who was on the U.S. national team, but uh, as mentioned, Canada's got a couple Blackhawks as well. Probably would have had Kevin Korchinski as well. Um, doesn't look like that's going to be the case, probably. Uh, I would say that's unlikely maybe, but just in general, are you fired up as a Blackhawks fan here? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, most of these guys at this point are forwards. You mentioned Korchinski, uh, and I know Sam Renzel on the side of us. I think the Blackhawks are definitely starting to build that, that forward core in their prospects. You know, maybe they got a little bit of room to grow on, on the back end. Uh, you know, some young guys there that you like, but, um, at least in terms of the depth, I, I like what they're doing up front. Paul, uh, Ludwinski is, uh, is the forward on, uh, on team Canada, um, at least at this camp. But I, uh, I mean, even the rest of this roster, I think it's a really, really strong back end, uh, stronger, you know, decor, uh, than what we've seen with uh, Team USA, at least in my opinion, going in. Uh, Oliver Bonk, Tanner, Moldenek, and Denton Matichuk all, you know, on this uh, on this roster, at least projecting as, uh, you know, impact D uh, for Team Canada as, as former first-round picks. So um, definitely some big defensemen. They can move, they can shoot it, uh, and, and they'll be able to generate for, for Canada a lot, um, you know, transitioning back into, you know, a pretty good forward core as well. Uh, some good size when you think about guys like Connor Geeky, Nate Danielson, Matthew Wood, uh, and then you got your skill as well with Braden Yeager and Matt Savoy on this roster. So Canada, they're always really good. You know, they're going to be really good uh, again this year. Um, so, you know, they're, they're a well-rounded team. I think um, that's probably where I have a little bit difference uh, between looking at specifically U.S. and Canada. U.S. maybe a little bit more forward depth, but I like the back end for Canada a little bit more uh, than what we've seen from the Americans so far. You know, always fun to get a Canada versus U.S. matchup. Surely we'll get at least one, hopefully multiple, as they move on throughout the WAC. But as a Blackhawks fan, RK, we have to talk about something that may not be as exciting for you, and that is Patrick Kane. Patrick Kane finally made his decision. He ends up going to a rival of the Blackhawks in the Detroit Red Wings. He's going to make his debut on Thursday, December 7th, after healing up from surgery. Uh, now that we've had a couple of days to car compartmentalize things, he started to make his um, return back to the lineup. Uh, he's been practicing a little bit. Are you at all saddened by the fact that Patrick Kane is going to be a Detroit Red Wing and is going to play uh, what seems to be meaningful games for the Red Wings? Or are you kind of just like, okay, I don't really care. Go Pat Kane. Lo love my Blackhawks. Woohoo! 
Yeah, definitely more on the latter. More just happy for Pat Kane. I felt like he should have been signed, uh, you know, even before now. So the fact that he had to wait all that time, you know, he, he still got good hockey in him. I, I know that there's an advanced analytics community out there that they'll put out their charts and they'll say Patrick Kane is, is toast. He's done. But I know this guy still has good hockey left in him and especially a team like Detroit that, um, you know, they've been putting up goals this year. You got to give him credit. Alex Dabrinkit has provided a nice spark for them. And uh, we know about their chemistry and, and past, obviously, with the Blackhawks. So, um, you know, I think Kane, uh, even if he's signed, slots in in you know a third line role or on the second power play I still think he's going to give you some juice and obviously his veteran presence um not like the Red Wings are that young of a team but um I think it'll definitely help uh, you know you even look at another guy like Dylan Larkin you know a top American player uh, you know maybe if Kane and Larkin can kind of build some chemistry that could be kind of fun uh, to see as well so definitely happy for Pat Kane uh hopefully things go well for him in Detroit and excited to see him back out there soon yeah, I just wanted to say before we move on to our questions, I really like the fit just in general. They have a lot of goal scorers, as you mentioned, Debrinkat, but uh, also depth scoring like Daniel Sprong, David Perron, guys that can score. You have Pat Kane giving the puck to these guys. It seems like a really, really uh, strong recipe for success. Uh, Detroit currently sitting at third in the Eastern Conference with 31 points, six points behind the Rangers in Boston, who are tied for number one. Uh, we did have some NHL questions. Our friend Eric dropped in a quite a few questions for us uh, around all of sports, but we're going to start off with hockey. We're going to rapid fire these. He wants to check in with another three teams, starting off with the Vancouver Canucks, currently sitting at 16, 9, and 1, uh, with the league's leading goal scorer, Brock Besser, with 18 goals through 26 games. Don't think I'm ever going to say that again, so... Uh, obviously, this is momentous occasion for them just in general, but they have uh, three players over 34 points with Pedersen, Hughes, and JT Miller all in a really having a super, super strong season uh, thus far. The Vancouver Canucks have kind of turned around what you would have expected to see after last year's very mediocre performance. Um, any thoughts on the Canucks? Are, are you bullish on the Canucks the rest of the season? Or are you thinking, okay, maybe a, a 33 point and 26 game start, maybe a little bit higher than what you would expect them to finish off at in the year? Yeah, I, I still uh, I still don't love the the forward depth uh, with Vancouver, and and we've seen some obviously good play. You mentioned Besser and Elias Pettersson has been super dominant this year. JT Miller uh, has been pretty solid uh, as well uh, for Vancouver, but um, yeah, I, I don't love overall what what we see there in in terms of say the bottom six production and uh, even maybe some of the the back pair uh, defense when you look outside of that you know dynamic top pair with Hughes and Heronic. I think they've carried them so far this year, and we've seen good goaltending out of Demko, but um, you know it's not a great division you know so I, I don't think that the Canucks are um, you know they're 10 points ahead of uh, of the team behind them for the number three spot in the Pacific at this point in time now there's a lot of hockey left to be played that certainly can be blown but um, you know we've seen good enough hockey from Vancouver that's like all right you know fair enough they'll probably be in the mix at the very least um, with what they've seen from some of their top end players um, I mean they just put up a, a ton of goals so far this year they've just been filling the net so um, that's obviously been been something that's really kind of carried them so far uh, better start than I expect them to see you know throughout I don't think they're a player in the Western Conference to win it by any means, but um, you know their top dogs have been super dominant, which um, is obviously a, a strong side and can carry you. I just kind of question the depth uh, in terms of keeping it up over an 82-game season and into the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah, we definitely saw them put the puck in the net in the Hughes Bowl last night against the New Jersey Devils. They scored three goals to tie it up at five in the third period and then gave up a goal with 34 seconds left to lose the game. So no points for the Canucks. As you were mentioning, a weak division. I want to talk about the other team in the division that he asked us about, the Seattle Kraken, a team that has been incredibly underwhelming this year. 8-12-6 for an 8-18 record. 
Uh, really not where you would have expected the Seattle Kraken to be after last year's very, very strong performance. Uh, they are currently, they've lost six of seven, lost five straight uh, in a position to where they are behind the Calgary Flames, uh, just above a team like Anaheim, two points up on Anaheim. Really not uh, a great start for them, something that maybe you would have anticipated a little bit of regression from them last year uh, to this year, but not this heavy regression. We have seen, uh, before I get your opinion on everything, We've seen major injuries once again. Uh, no Andre Burakovsky. He's missed 17 games already this year. At least 17 games. I think you could probably argue it's more like 20 games at that point. But um, they currently have been listed at 17 games missed this season, which is a, a little bit of a scary reality there. Uh, just in general, the Seattle Kraken, a step back and then some this year. Are we thinking the Kraken still have a chance at the playoffs? Or is it going to be... Um, it, it looks like it's going to be a grind for them to keep, keep in it, given the fact that they just... They can't seem to get anything done offensively. And once again, um, goaltending has returned to its very, very mediocre spot that it was at two years ago. Uh, maybe a little bit surprising, but the Kraken are, they're a really interesting team. Yeah, they are. Uh, I, I You mentioned the goaltending. I think that's probably where I start with them. Uh, I mean, you look at the goalies that have played for them, Philip Grubauer, Joey Decord, you know, both under a 900 save percentage. So that's not really helping them out too much. And and I don't think this decor is, say, the worst in the NHL, but it's certainly not the best either. You've got some guys there with Vince Dunn, Adam Larson, Jamie Alexiak that I think are solid, but um, not good enough when when your goaltending is, is, you know, letting in one out of every 10 shots uh, against them uh, on a good day. That's better than their average uh, so far this year at this point. And, um, you know, still some young guys they're trying to work in. You know, I know Jared McCann has obviously been scoring goals for them still, but maybe Maddie Beneers off to a slower start than we would expect, you know, kind of playing on that top line with Jordan Eberle uh, at this point in time. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it's tough because maybe the Kraken, maybe our impression of them was kind of inflated after a, you know, surprising upset of the Colorado Avalanche in the playoffs last year. So maybe their expectations were uh, a little bit higher than what we kind of saw out of them in the regular season and, and most of the year um, before the Stanley Cup playoffs last year. So off to a tough start. Um, you know, I, I don't see it turning around to where they qualify for the Stanley Cup playoffs unless they kind of fix the goaltending thing, whether that be uh, go and trade for somebody or just all of a sudden Philip Grubauer, you know, turns it around on them. I'm not sure what necessarily the answer is for them, but um, yeah, it's, it's been a tough start. And, and I think primarily the goaltending and, um, you know, not enough forward, uh, you know, depth as well is something that's kind of hindered them so far. Yeah, you know, we are talking about the Seattle Kraken below teams like the Minnesota Wild and Nashville Predators who have had very, very inconsistent starts to the season. I'm also trailing teams like Arizona and Calgary and St. Louis, who are not super exciting in that aspect either. Uh, swapping over to the Eastern Conference, he also asks us to check in on the Washington Capitals. Now, had we done this last week, we would have been talking about the Washington Capitals in a pretty strong position, uh, but they have lost a couple of games since last week. They really, really, really got dominated by the Arizona Coyotes on Monday night, which is not something you ever want to have happen to you. Uh, given the fact that Arizona is still probably a year or two away from being a legitimate playoff team in the NHL. Uh, but we have seen the Capitals a very inconsistent year. Um, just want to mention Alex Ovechkin only has five goals in 22 games this year. So everybody that was on the, oh, he's going to break Gretzky's record without a doubt train. Uh, you're currently looking at Ovechkin with 81 shots, five goals in the net. Clearly he will improve at some point. That shooting percentage will go up at some point. But at this point, it's there's not a whole lot of positives for the Washington Capitals. Statistically, the only positive you can really take away is the fact that they're still in the race. We've seen decent enough goaltending from guys like Charlie Lindgren, who have stepped up and really provided a spark for them when Darcy Kemper has not. Um, or I think that I think they're in a pretty mediocre position as well, given how strong the Eastern Conference is. 
Um, we're talking about them just above New Jersey and Pittsburgh. And I think you can definitely say New Jersey is better than, but even Pittsburgh is probably better than the Capitals. Um, are you at a spot where you're thinking the Capitals can make the playoffs or it's going to be a grind regardless of what happens, but it just seems like something's missing with this Capitals team. Uh, even if they have performed as good or maybe a little bit better than we would have anticipated to start off the year. Yeah, I think you mentioned it when you talked about Charlie Lindgren in that, you know, 928, you know, is not what we expected. Way better than um, what we would have thought out of, yeah, like you said, pretty much their backup goalie, Darcy Kemper, is started more games, but he has an 887, you know, below 900 save percentage has, has not been good. So I think without, you know, a strong backup goaltending, um, you know, this team's probably not really as much in that hunt or ahead of teams like New Jersey or Pittsburgh, which they currently are only one point ahead of at, at this point in time. So, um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of reason for concern with the caps um you know tj oshi has gotten injured and, and he seems to come back soon but you know that that's the risk with the older group that they have so um yeah i, I think that the uh they haven't gotten the the scoring that um they would have liked but uh, i don't think it's necessarily too too surprising in a really good division i think that it is surprising that they've done as good as they have and primarily i think that comes back to uh the play of lingering so far in that yeah, we have also seen, just to mention, uh, on top of their uh, mediocre offensive performance, we've seen Evgeny Kuznetsov be scratched, healthy scratched, multiple times this year, which is not something that you would have anticipated, uh, say, three, four, or five years ago when Evgeny Kuznetsov was doing uh, the absolute most every night. It felt like he was a future star in the league. Now at 31, it feels like he's more of a depth piece than anything, which is crazy to say. Uh, but uh, there's your check-in on the Canucks, Kraken, and Capitals, three teams that we should talk about a lot throughout the season. He also has a question about the St. Louis Blues and Robert Thomas having a sneaky great season, currently at 24 points in 24 games played. His question here, uh, on top of talking about Robert Thomas, uh, is just about the Blues currently sitting in the eighth spot. Uh, are they a chance? Do they have a chance at a playoff spot? I don't see why not, but maybe. You, as as a fan of a team in the division, has a, a stronger perspective on this. Uh, any thoughts on the St. Louis Blues and their playoff chances this year? Yeah, I think they're definitely in that uh, in that mix. You know, I think last season they were worse than I expected them to be by quite a significant margin. So maybe you get a little bit of bounce back um, from them. And yeah, Thomas has really kind of led the way and uh, they kind of made some significant moves moving on from guys like O'Reilly and Tarasenko that helped lead them to these cup runs and say, all right, Kairou and Robert Thomas, it's kind of your team uh, now and, and we're moving on. And uh, even though they're not playing on the same line right now, they're kind of leading the uh, top six. And uh, Thomas has been great as that number one center playing right now with Buchnevich and, and Jake Neighbors. And he He's really been getting the job done for them, um, you know, point per game player. And they've also gotten some solid goaltending from Jordan Bennington. It's always kind of a wild card with him. If he's really good or really bad, he's been pretty good this year so far. So that's obviously boded well for the blues and some of their success. So uh, I think they're very much going to be kind of in that wild card hunt, uh, maybe even contending a little bit for that central three spot behind Colorado and Dallas. But um, yeah, it's kind of very much up for grabs when you look at pretty much everybody in the central after Colorado and Dallas uh, with the exclusion of the Blackhawks who are definitely not in that mix. And, uh, you know, maybe the Wilds start to turn it around a little bit with John Hines in the mix. But um, I'm thinking, you know, Winnipeg, Arizona, St. Louis, Nashville, those four teams, um, you know, they're very much uh, competing for not only just that central three spot, but potentially two wildcard spots because the Pacific's been so bad uh, when you look at the other division in the West, too. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's also that's actually where we're going to end up looking for the St. Louis Blues come the end of the season. I would anticipate that they are in one of those two wildcard spots. Uh, just given the fact that I think the rest of the West, as we've talked about for what seems to be like three or four years now, RK, 
Um, outside of the top couple teams, the West is really mediocre once again, and the teams never really get any better. We never see teams like Winnipeg get any better. We never see teams like Nashville get any better, even though both teams have sort of kind of tried uh, with big trades and big free agency signings. It just doesn't seem like they ever get any better. So uh, I think the Blues are in a great spot for that situation. I wouldn't anticipate that we, if the Blues fell out of wildcard spot by the end of the year, I think I'd be more surprised than them making the playoffs at, say, the 7 and 8 seed. And I also just want to mention before we move on, I would hate to be the Colorado Avalanche or Vegas Golden Knights and have to play the St. Louis Blues in a playoff matchup just given the fact that they have all of that talent, all that scoring ability. And again, um, Jordan Bennington, if he plays 9-15 save percentage hockey, like pretty strong team. So uh, I would definitely, I echo the sentiments, I would anticipate them being in a wild card spot. Maybe the Central 3, um, but uh, it's not like they're changing. They're, they're not They're not going anywhere. We're probably not going to see the St. Louis Blues winning the Stanley Cup this year or at any point in the near future. Um, I think Arkan and I are both pretty spot on on that thought process. We have plenty other questions from Eric. Let's do a quick run through uh, his football questions. He is thinking college football. He's thinking transfer portal. He wants the most valuable wide receiver, quarterback, wide receiver, and running back. I'll start off with quarterback. Who is the most valuable quarterback in the transfer portal at this point in time, RK? Yeah, I think without a doubt, you got to look at Dylan Gabriel, uh, Oklahoma quarterback, you know, started his career at UCF and, you know, started there for three years um, before he got injured in that third year and now has played two years uh, at Oklahoma. He's been a pretty accurate passer, you know, touchdown interception 30 to six this year. Pretty good. Obviously, Oklahoma has some good weapons out there, but I think Gabriel, he was getting a little Heisman buzz there for a little bit in point in time, but, um, you know, kind of, you know, derailed a little bit, but um, I don't think he's quite, you know, NFL, you know, caliber yet, which, uh, I don't know if he'll ever get there if he's not after five years of college, but he's got that sixth year of eligibility. I think that he would be a good quarterback pickup, um, probably the top name in the portal uh, for me right now. Yeah, absolutely. A very recognizable name in the portal. Uh, he's also asking for running back and wide receiver. Let's start off with running back RK. Who you got? Yeah, I think uh, not a huge uh, marquee name, in my opinion, at running back, but uh, Ray Leak Brown is kind of a uh, wide receiver running back hybrid kind of gadget, you know, player, uh, played at USC last year, uh, a couple explosive touchdowns back in 2022, but um, really kind of didn't have it this year as much. So looking for a kind of change of scenery. So I think Ray Leak Brown for, for a running back receiver hybrid and then straight up wide receiver. I'm going to look at Julian Fleming from Ohio State uh, hitting the transfer portal after four years with the Buckeyes. We know they've produced uh, a lot of really good receivers Marvin Harrison there Emeka Ibuka going to the NFL Fleming will depart and, and stay in college in the transfer portal so didn't have any touchdowns this year but he was a really highly rated recruit had a solid year in 2022 uh, six touchdowns over 500 yards so I think a change of scenery he could probably be a wide receiver one especially as a fifth-year player uh, in a different college offense and obviously we will probably see more transfer portal moves because this has been absolutely insane the last couple of years with nil coming up transfer portal has been just absolutely nuts to follow very hard to follow uh even with all the great resources out there that list everything it just feels like there's there's thousands of players going to the transfer portal that you just can't keep up on um he did have a couple other questions that are sort of kind of related to college football he's asking about the patriots uh, asking what should the patriots rebuild look like who are the best head coaching gm candidates and should they slow build or take a QB if they have a top two pick? Now, before we get into head coaching or GM candidates, um, Ark, I don't think either of us are going to to disagree on this one. Got to be a quarterback. We're going to need a quarterback out in New England. It's been really hard to watch the Patriots play football 
uh, recently, last couple of years. Mac Jones, it feels like he is clearly just not it, not not that guy. Uh, maybe he would be better off in another position or as a backup elsewhere. Uh, Bailey Zappi is even less that guy, maybe, but still not that guy. Um, if you are the Patriots, uh, in my eyes at least, if you get a top two pick, you're going quarterback 100% of the time. doesn't matter who your head coach or GM is at that point. Um, do you agree with me on that sentiment, or are you thinking they may go a different different angle? Yeah, I think the only other thought would be Mar- uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. here. I, you know, it's a bad receiver room in New England, and uh, I even think you know with a rookie quarterback, they're still probably pretty bad next year, even with a solid defense. That offense has just been super inept. So, uh, but having said that, I think in a good quarterback class, you're picking second overall. You probably should take a quarterback, even if number one is Caleb Williams. Um, you know, take your pick of the Drake Mays, Bo Nix, Jaden Daniels. However, you want to figure it out after that. You know, I, I think that's probably the direction I would go with New England. Uh, just since it does not seem like things are going to work out long term with Mac Jones you know maybe a change of scenery would be good for Mac Jones and he could be decent somewhere else but um, you know I'm not necessarily sure with what New England has at this point in time um, that that could be you know a good spot for them um, I think we're looking at a couple of years here that offense uh, even if they went out and kind of got some veterans uh, in that mix you know I, I still don't think they're necessarily competing for that division um, over teams like Miami and, and Buffalo so a couple of years away for the Pats but um, yeah I think if they can grab a quarterback early in the draft and it certainly projects that uh, they'll be picking certain Certainly in the top five right now, number two overall, as things stand, I think that's the direction I'd look for as well. Yeah, I don't think there's any projection that's going to have them picking outside of the top five after last week's really just just uh, abysmal performance, putting up zero points against the Chargers, who are uh, very regularly known as having shootout games where they put up some points and they give up a lot of points too. Um, he's also asking about the top head coaching or GM candidates for the Patriots. Uh, I guess this assumes that Bill Belichick would move on. I think Bill Belichick moving on would end up being a, he'd end up with the Chargers. That would be the the most likely uh, landing spot for him after this season. But uh, if the Patriots did move on from Bill Belichick, who would you anticipate them going after outside in the market? Surely there's a couple names out there that are at least a little bit recognizable. Uh, who you got, RK? Yeah, I'll just kind of run through this quick because, uh, you know, this is kind of more of a postseason conversation anyways. But the Lions, believe it or not, their coordinators are kind of in that mix. Ben Johnson, OC. About I like Aaron Glenn, their defensive coordinator, uh, just a little bit more. I think we've seen some good fight out of the Lions defense this year. Uh, Todd Monken is another name that's interesting, was the Georgia offensive coordinator now with the Baltimore Ravens, who have obviously had uh, a really strong year. Um, you know, could be a nice fit for the Pats, who obviously don't have much offense going for him right now. Maybe an offensive-minded guy would be good for him. Uh, and then GM, uh, I mean, I don't know a ton of these guys in a ton of depth but uh chiefs assistant general manager mike borengazi you know that seems like a decent play just grab one of the top teams assistant gms and, and call it good but um pat's rebuild it, it's going to take a lot of time and uh who knows Belichick still kind of runs the key to the ship even in a two and ten team he's obviously earned that so uh it'll be him kind of calling it quits more so than Kraft uh, kicking him out if i had to guess on that yeah i think that uh i definitely agree with that it all uh, kind of sort of feels like what the spurs have done uh with coach pop yeah, kind of just time. like yeah it's it's your show, pal. Like you, you're figuring it out until you until you croak, and you know we'll go from there. Um, could be really interesting. Obviously, I don't think either of us have seen the Patriots bad in our lifetime, so um, it will be really interesting to see where they go from here. Uh, he has a couple other questions. We're talking NFL before we get to baseball and a random snow New Jersey question. He's asking. He says he believes the NFL MVP should not go to a QB this year, and he's asking for three non QB MVP candidates. RK, I think we will both have the same couple candidates here. Who you got? 
Yeah, I think Chris McCaffrey is kind of the no-brainer non-QB MVP candidate at this point in time with what he's done for the Niners. Tyreek Hill has had one of the best seasons of any receiver this year, and the Dolphins have been really good. Third one is kind of interesting for me, but I'll go Amon Ross St. Brown for the Detroit Lions. I don't think there's a realistic way he wins the MVP, but um, obviously he's been a big driving force and super consistent this year for the Lions, who have been one of the nice stories and probably project to win uh, their division in the NFC North. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Tyreek especially is the candidate that I would zoom in on solely because it does seem like he is, I can guarantee you that he's on pace to break the 2,000-yard record, 2,000-yard uh, point this year and break Calvin Johnson's receiving yards record. And he's actually averaging more yards per game than Calvin Johnson was in his season where he did break the record. I know that will be a big point of contention with people um, towards the end of the year because there is the extra game involved Tyreek Hill should be he have ample opportunity to break 2,000 yards this season if he does that uh, it seems like he would get a lot of love there I do want to mention I disagree with Eric's sentiment on the NFL MVP not going to quarterback I think we're almost assuredly talking about either uh, Jalen Hurts or maybe Dak Prescott I don't want to say Brock Purdy because I don't think Brock Purdy is the most valuable player in the NFL, but I think he's getting a lot of respect for it. Um, I I totally disagree with the the NFL MVP not going to a quarterback unless they gave it to Christian McCaffrey. If the 49ers ended with the best record in football, I would agree with that. Um, But it's, it's got to be, it's a quarterback award, RK. It's always been a quarterback award. It'll always be a quarterback award. If we were really talking about the most valuable player, uh, defensive players would actually get a little bit of respect, but I, I don't think in our lifetime we're ever going to see anything. Like it's, it's just, for whatever reason, it's an offense heavy league. It's an offense heavy award. It's a quarterback heavy award. It's just how it's going to be, right? Yeah, I think Christian McCaffrey at least brings the conversation to where you're like, oh, maybe we could consider him, but it's going to go to our quarterback. Let's not get ourselves. Yeah, I mean, come on. Uh, we have a couple of questions from Eric real quick. He's asking, how did the Broncos get out of Russell Wilson? Is it fair to say at this point, he's just better than, he's just slightly better prime case Keenum. So first off prime case Keenum, I don't know where that comes up. I don't know who thought of prime case Keenum. I don't remember. I don't remember prime case Keenum. I don't know if case Keenum had a prime in the NFL. So to say Russell Wilson is just a little bit better than prime case Keenum is really, really sad. Uh, but I did want to mention, I don't even have that answer for you, but I, he's been asking us Broncos playoffs the last couple weeks, talking about how Russell Wilson's uh, having a great season and his statistics are all better than Patrick. Like what happened? Where do, where, where, where's the, where's the disconnect from going from Russell Wilson being an MVP candidate three weeks ago to Russell Wilson being better than slightly, pro, slightly better than prime case Keenum. Like I'm thinking this is just an overreaction RK. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I'm, I'm thinking this is a classic Eric Jensen overreaction. Yeah, it is. Very much agree with you. I guess Prime Case Keenum was literally just 2017 Vikings Case Keenum. <laughs> the only time he's ever played okay in the NFL. I, I think the best way to get out of Russ is build a time machine, go back to 2022, and don't give him a five-year extension. It's probably your best bet if you're if you're a Broncos fan, because uh, otherwise you're waiting until 2026 and then dealing with $31 million in dead cap. So that's probably most likely what's going to happen. And still, we got to wait through this year and two more when he's 37. So, yeah, Broncos, you know, not great. Either pick we're rooting for the playoffs and we're rooting for Russ or we're getting rid of him. There's no in between, Eric. It can't be week to week back and forth uh, here for me. Yeah, you know, losing a close game to the Houston Texans, who have been the surprise of the NFL this year. Um, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I honestly yeah, chance you know, right like, at the end of the game. It, it seems, seems like seems like it's OK. seems like this should not be a reality where we're upset. Um, but that's okay. Eric, we'll, we'll let Eric be Eric. No Broncos playoff question this week because they lost. So we'll take that. Uh, he's also asking about the Packers. Are the Packers going to win out, uh, the schedule as we touched on a little bit earlier, uh, this podcast, they play the giants next week should be a victory. They play Tampa, Carolina, Minnesota, 
and then Chicago. He's asking if the Packers should win out. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to say the Packers win four of the five games. I'm assuming, and I, I mean, I could be wrong on this. I'm assuming they will lose one of Tampa, Minnesota, or Chicago. Um, I would also, I'd probably key in on that Sunday night, December 31st game against Minnesota as the one that they probably have the least chance to win, just given the circumstances will be a really, really important game for both teams. Um, do you see a way that the Green Bay Packers end up winning five straight, end up the season with eight wins in a row? I think it's possible, but I'm with you. I would probably predict no. Uh, you mentioned that Vikings game, you know, tough on the road, even with a backup quarterback and Dobbs as we project. And even that home Tampa game, that could be kind of a sneaky one that uh, maybe, you know, the random game where the Bucks beat the Packers to kind of just middling NFC teams, you know, it could kind of go either way in my opinion. But uh, Giants, Panthers, Bears, those should probably be wins. You get at least three wins there for the pack and, um, you know, put yourself in a chance to make the playoffs. But um, I would probably put my money on no in terms of winning out. Yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment there. Although I do think the Packers are in a good position to win four of those games, make the playoffs, should be a good spot there. Uh, he's got a baseball question, Shohei Otani. He's asking, when do we get a Shohei decision in the MLB? Uh, the news on this has pretty much been teams are meeting with them. Dave Roberts leaked a meeting about with the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium, which apparently Shohei Otani was not thrilled about or didn't want his 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 whereabouts to be put on the public. I don't know. You kind of, you know, we, we all knew that there was going to be an Otani Dodgers meeting at some point. So, you know, not really any crazy news there. But RK, if you had to guess, um, I guess I'm going to shift this question. Do we get a Shohei Otani decision this week? Is it going to be over by Sunday? Will we be talking about Shohei Otani's decision on the next podcast? I'm going to go with no on that one. Uh, it's tough for me to really know. Shohei Otani doesn't even speak English. So even if he was my next door neighbor, I couldn't get an answer for you. So uh, I'm going to go with no, though. I think this thing will continue to drag out in typical baseball fashion. Um, if you were going to take a guess, are we going to get it by the end of December? I, I will say if we don't get it by the end of December, nothing else is going to happen probably. So uh, I'm selfishly, I'm really rooting for a decision quickly, but uh, end of December, would you guess that we have a decision by then? I'm going to go. Yes. I'm going to say that window in between Christmas and New Year's, we'll get it that week. That's just my random guess for you. Oh, that would be unbelievable. Imagine he signed on Christmas Day. Like, what a present it is for whatever team gets him. That would be absolutely lovely for whatever that happens. I like that. I think that's probably pretty rational. If it goes into the new year, we have a serious problem. I, I'm going, I will be very angry. So just keep that in mind. We have four podcasts until the new year, including this one. Uh, if we don't have Shohei Otani signing news in one of those podcasts, there's going to be hell to pay on our first New Year podcast, RK. That's all I'll say. Sheck West is going to come on and really just chew out Shohei Otani with us. Uh, it's going to be a great time. But yeah, I'm going to guess. I'm going to I'm going to back RK here. I'm thinking the last week of December, um, hopefully sooner than then. But knowing baseball, it just is what it is. Eric has one final question. He's totally off off the board. He's asking uh, if you were suddenly transported into the body of a snowman on a snowy New Jersey morning, currently 24 degrees but it's supposed to get up to a high of 39 later in the day and you have snow legs. Uh, what is your survival plan before you melt? What is your strategy and how long do you last? Uh, RK, any thoughts on this one? What is the survival plan to stay alive in a, a heating up snowy morning? Yeah, my first thought was going to a hockey rink, but I still don't think that's cold enough. So I'm going <laughs> to audible for going to a hockey rink on this one. And my uh, what I'm going to do I, I need to ask you first, because I've heard differences in states. When you go to a gas station, do they serve alcohol at the gas station when you go inside? Not in New Jersey. That is not legal. That okay. does not happen. Well, that ruined my plan, so I guess I'm going back to the hockey rink. Okay. Well, the hockey rink is a thought. It was also one of the thoughts on my mind, but I also chose to take a, a different approach to this. 
if I'm not staying outside and going to the highest point where it's snowing into a mountain, I'm going into a walk-in freezer, RK, obviously at Bajel back in the day as a okay. store worker. That's what I was thinking uh, at the gas station. So I guess that's we, a good alternative. We did have a walk-in freezer that could be set down to negative 10 or negative 15 wow. degrees. So it's not going to get to that point. If you do set uh, a walk-in freezer at negative 10 or negative 15 degrees, you're probably going to come out with product that isn't in the same state that you put it in the refrigerator. Uh, but I'm thinking for a snowman, Negative 10 degrees sounds pretty damn good for a snowman with snow legs. I think that he would live uh, until it gets down under the 30 degree mark that we're looking for. That is my survival plan. If I can't get into a walk-in freezer, I'm going to melt. I'm going to die. And it just is what it is. Unfortunately, the snowman life, you're not a permanent snowman. You're never a permanent snowman. Snowmen are only, they, they are very, very able to be changed via the weather and it just, it is what it is. Sorry, Eric. Hopefully you had a better answer. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Eric. Um, are we tried hard, Kay. We really yeah. did try on this one. No, I like your answer on this. I just think of like the two minutes of chaos when you walk into any establishment and you're like, where's your freezer? Where <laughs> is your walk-in freezer? It's 70 degrees. It's room temperature. Get me in there. I gotta go right now. Find me the freezer. <laughs> just that two minute of panic would just be, would be outstanding stuff. To see. Yeah. The classic, the carrot on your nose is dripping yeah. down the face. <laughs> I need it the now. <laughs> the pebbles you had helped me. You know, that's, that's the situation you ended up being in. That just, uh, that is what it is. Great question, Eric. We really appreciate that. That was a good one. Uh, we have a couple other questions. I'm going to kick this over to you, RK, as it is. Uh, two different members of your family uh, at the host point of our question. The final two question askers uh, have at it. Let's dive into it. This next question comes from my dad, and he's fired up about college football bowl season as he is every year. And his question for us, Donnie, is with bowl season starting up here in uh, about 10 days from time of recording right now, what's your favorite thing about the college football postseason? What do you got, Donnie? What are you most excited about heading into bowl season? Yeah, I think the biggest thing as I've grown up, so when I was younger, I enjoyed seeing upsets. I enjoyed seeing like really close battle out games. Um, where teams that didn't really have anything to play for were still playing for a bowl game because they cared about their bowl game, like bowl games actually meant something. Uh, now, at this point, without uh, not talking about college football playoff games, the bowl games don't really seem to mean as much for me. Uh, but I do really enjoy seeing players have their stock rise up because of a bowl game or get to see players play uh, on sort of like a marquee-esque uh, space. Obviously, a lot of the time we see uh, college football, there's 30 or 40 games going on at the same time, really hard to watch one specific prospect or a couple of specific prospects uh, during bowl season. Now you can zoom in on specific players and just watch for those specific players. Uh, something that I have grown to do a lot over the last couple of years. I think a lot of it has to go do with the, the giants being so bad. I'm always like trying to see who the next big prospects are. So I would say if, if there's anything that I really, really like about college football playoff or college football postseason, uh, just learning more about the NFL draft prospects, I would say that bowl season is when I really start to lock in and see these guys. And then I can go back and look at different games from their season, uh, see what they did against other teams. Uh, you learn a lot when you have marquee matchups or just like solo games going on on a Thursday at 3 p.m. Like there, there's something about it that does a little bit more for you in terms of like an NFL fan uh, come college football bowl season. 
Yeah, I uh, I love that answer. I would say for me, I got to say it's got to be the playoff, though. I mean, come on. We've been waiting all year to see the college football playoff. I think it'll be fun to see, especially that Michigan-Alabama game, which I think the winner probably is the favorite in the national title game. And then hopefully some fun offensive fireworks between Texas and Washington. Uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun. I feel like most of the year in college football, I'm mostly watching to just see these top prospects, see who's coming out in the draft. Uh, but at this point in time, we're kind of looking at these top teams, really kind of dialing in on them. And uh, yeah, Florida State, Georgia, you guys are just on the outside looking in but um nevertheless college football playoffs always a ton of fun on uh, on new year's day this year um so i'm gonna take the cake and, and the easy answer and just say college football playoff without a doubt yeah i'm calling you out it's a little bit of a cop out there it it's is a little bit but i mean understandable it is it's the only thing that really matters so i mean that's fine uh all right let's go move on now my dad his second question also about college football said excluding the six college football playoff New Year's six bowls. Which bowl matchup are you most excited about and why? I'm going to take this one first, actually, Donnie. And I'm looking at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas on Thursday, December 28th in a matchup between the Arizona Wildcats and Oklahoma Sooners. Now, we touched on earlier how Oklahoma quarterback Dylan Gabriel entering the transfer portal. So who's up next? Uh, They've got uh, a top prospect. Uh, a five-star recruit quarterback who will be stepping in uh, for them. Jackson Arnold uh, should be starting this game for Oklahoma. So, um, you know, like I said, not as much draft prospect stuff. A lot of the top draft prospects and non-New Year's Six Bulls are sitting out, getting ready for the NFL. But we can kind of turn our heads, look towards who the next crop of guys is. And uh, I think Jackson Arnold as a five-star recruit for Oklahoma. He should be uh, a fun one to watch. And uh, Arizona, for them, usually they don't have this good of season. So uh, for them to be in this kind of a game against Oklahoma is a big deal for them. So uh, I think it should be an interesting matchup uh, between Oklahoma and Arizona uh, in that game on uh, on the 28th. You know, I like that. I appreciate that you're picking teams that actually had a pulse this year uh, in their bowl game. I'm actually going to go with Miami's bowl game because it's very local to me. They're playing Rutgers at Yankee Stadium in the pinstripe bowl. I think there's a slight chance that I will end up toughing out the, the frigid conditions and going to see this game. Uh, it's on a Thursday at 2 p.m. Um, right after Christmas. I... I'm I'm really considering going to watch the seven and five Miami Hurricanes with a bunch of guys out uh, in person. I think that it could be a fantastic time. Obviously, there will be a lot of Rutgers fans there. They may end up getting more fans at at the Yankee at Yankee Stadium than they did at their actual games at their actual stadium. Uh, Rutgers, just given the circumstances, and obviously Miami fans, um, they've they've played in New York before. This is not the first time that the, the Miami Hurricanes have played in said bowl game. So I'm actually fired up. I may consider going to this game. Obviously, um, once it gets closer to this, this. You know, lovely, lovely date just after Christmas. I'm going to think probably not going to end up being the case. But at this point, I'm sort of excited to see like the next step, the next tier of Miami Hurricanes stars um, get some run because it's assuredly there's going to be a lot of guys sitting out for the Hurricanes this year. Yeah, you would have to figure so. And local game for Rutgers, I think the reason that the Big Ten is in this game at Yankee Stadium is because they're like, hey, we got one team close by in New Jersey. And Rutgers finally uh, gets the call and and will play in that game. Six wins, baby. Six wins. Hey, that's a big deal for them. Even though it was the first place of college football, six wins is a big deal for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. So uh, good luck for them. And yeah, Miami right down the road, not something that uh, that you typically get um, for you, Donnie. So uh, we'll we'll have to see how that one ends up. But uh, hopefully uh, a Hurricanes win for you. Yeah, I mean, if I'm there and they lose, I'll be very sad. That's all I'll say. I will be very depressed. I went into Yankee Stadium to watch this fucking, this bullshit, pardon my French, because it yeah. will be, it will be bullshit. Almost assuredly will be bullshit. 
yeah, freeze your ass off and see a hurricane's <laughs> loss. That's not what we want. But um, yeah, good question there uh, from my dad. Always fired up for college football bowl season as we are as well. Should be a fun next uh, month or so uh, of action leading up to the uh, national title game uh, in January. All right, let's wrap up the podcast. It's been a very long podcast. So we finally reached the designated spot for my sister Kira and her boyfriend, Phil. They're back this week. Uh, you know, a little bit. We recorded a little earlier last week, so we'll, we'll give them a, a pass on uh, on their question. But they got one in this week. Top tier of cereal mascots. It's a great question. A lot of cereal mascots out there. We were having some discourse before the podcast, Donnie, on just the variety of cereal mascots. We've got no shortage of options, but give me your top tier of cereal mascots. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, Tony the Tiger is just the most recognizable of the mascots. I think he was kind of just like everywhere when I was growing up. So, um. Good, good attitude. Very positive mascot. We need more positive mascots in this world, so we'll take that. Uh, also, Captain Crunch. Obviously, Crunch ties me, Captain. Something that I have heard. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands, of times growing up on TV. Whether it was watching mostly, I would say, like a Nickelodeon thing. Like you're watching kids TV show. You're seeing these cereal commercials all the time. Um, I also wanted to add in Snap Crackle and Pop as just a trio because it is like. They've they've all bring something to the table. It's like the big three. Obviously, it's like Bosch, Wade, and LeBron. They've all got some 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 positives to bring to the table. They all do something very well in their own specific way. Um, so that that was my last. It's not they're they're like a, a tier two, tier one. They're they're like they're right on the cusp there. I wanted to give them the respect that they deserve. Um, RK, I want to hear what you got though. Uh, did I leave anybody off that I should have had on my list? Yeah, uh, I think so. I got uh, Lucky Charms at the top in the top tier. Of course. Sure. Lucky the Leprechaun. Gotta, of course. Gotta include him. You know, he's kind of the face of it for me, at least. Uh, I'm going with uh, with Fruit Loops as well. Toucan Sam. I think he's got to make the cut for me in the top tier. Just a nice little bird on Fruit Loops. I feel like that's it's pretty solid. Uh, and then last one for me, I'm going with Cookie Crisp. Wasn't a huge fan of Cookie Crisp uh, like as a, as a whole, but they got like this like cookie like wolf man dude wolf. I don't really know how to, yeah i don't know exactly how to explain it but uh yeah cookie jarvis i guess that's uh that's the guy so yeah shout out to cookie chris he always was looking at me and i'm like all right this guy looks cool but i i wasn't a huge fan of cereal but i'm, I'm not shorting the mascot i think the thought counts here with cookie chris so i'm going uh lucky charms fruit loops and cookie crisps for my uh my top tier cereal mascots yeah, you know, I left the Cookie Crisp mascot off because Cookie Crisp doesn't seem like a cereal to me still all this time. I will I will live and die on the, the hill that I probably don't need to be eating uh, cookies and milk for breakfast. So the mascot, um, the mascot's not doing it for me. I'm, I don't approve of him. I think that he's he's a, a tier two for sure. But tier yeah. one, he, he's not that iconic. He's not that special to me. Yeah, I'm with you. Like tier two is very valid here because like tier one, you know, we got to we got to include like the legends of the game. But like tier two, I feel like it's pretty deep. Like you got like the tricks bunny. Like I feel of like course. he might, you know, make the like, cocoa bubbles. You got like basically like Frank Frinstone. Like I'd probably throw Captain Crunch on there. Like Honey Nut Cheerios, that little the, bee. The bee? Yeah, of course. Like, you, got, you got a deep tier two, but I feel like tier one, you know, Lucky Charms is like, okay, we're setting the tone high for tier one of cereal mascots, but but tier two is deep. So that's not to not to short all of the variety of cereal mascots that are out there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. We need to be uh very reasonable. There's not any not any cereal mascots that I hate. The cereal mascots, they're just they're very very consistently positive and we'll take that we need more consistently positive mascots in this world obviously we don't need uh we don't need the mascot issues we were talking about in college football last week with the usc the usc mascot with the sword uh, the there's no sword in these mascots no sword in the serial mascots there's no damage there's no potential um 
tipping over of a horse carriage with these mascots. It's just, it's positive, positive cartoon commercial mascot. This is all we're looking for in life. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're here for a top tier. Kieran, Phil, you got to let us know now your top tier of serial mascots. Did we forget anybody ourselves? We, we gave you two tiers, so we went, we went deep into the lineup on the serial mascots. But um, great question from you guys, as always. Glad to have you guys end of the podcast, folks. Thanks for making it all the way through. No matter when you tuned in, we appreciate it. We love you guys all the same. You guys are absolutely the best. Check West. He's coming on the podcast next week. You guys got to come back and tune in for that one. But fun time of year. A lot of football going on. Hockey a little bit deeper uh, as well. Uh, NBA in-season tournament existing. We're not really acknowledging it because it still makes no no sense for really being honest. But long, fun podcast. Thanks again for everybody for tuning in. And we'll be back again next week. Peace, everybody. Peace, everybody. Life couldn't get better. This